Welcome back to the Global Greek Influence, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the dynamic world of global Greeks in the realms of technology, cutting-edge scientific and engineering innovation, entrepreneurship and business, also special topics on politics and history. I'm your hostess, Panayoto Pimenidou, and I'm thrilled to have you join us once again. If you want to stay updated and never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe, like and review the Global Greek Influence podcast on your favorite podcasting platform such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts and more. Your support means the world to me. For even more engagement, be sure to follow our podcast's Twitter account, Facebook page and LinkedIn page. It is the best way to stay up to date with the latest episodes, connect with me directly, and even suggest topics you would love to explore. But wait, there is more. For just two euros and 99 cents a month, you can unlock a world of exclusive content. By becoming a premium subscriber, you will gain access to exclusive video episodes available only on Spotify, get sneak peeks of upcoming interviews, and enjoy special episodes that dive deep into fascinating topics. So get ready to immerse yourself in the captivating stories and influential figures that have shaped the global Greek influence and impact the world today. Join us on this exciting journey of discovery and celebration. Thank you for being part of the global Greek influence community. By reading history and historical documents of science, we do not help but notice that the language and communication used, perception and reality concepts were different across the eons. Today we have reached the point that science and technology are well developed and applied. Language is far more accurate of the physics of nature rather than descriptive literature as in ancient times. Philosophy in ancient times did not only engage with ethics and the nature of the spirit and soul of a human, but also with the nature surrounding humans. Ancient philosophy also conceptualized the physics of the earth and the universe. Ancient Greeks believed that the gods breathed ether as the humans breathed air. Typical of those times, ether was personified as Erebus and Nix's son in the mythology. Aristotle concluded that ether was the fifth element existing in the universe beyond the moon, such as the sun. Also, ethereal spheres moved in a circular motion were responsible for the star's orbits. Until the 19th century, physicists considered ether to be responsible for transmitting electromagnetic waves across the universe. Such a concept was abandoned in 1905 by the special theory of relativity by Albert Einstein. Einstein's space-time continuum and subatomic theories downgraded the ether into the realms of mysticism and pseudoscience. We see that historically scientists from the 17th to the 20th century attempted to look for evidence that supported the claims of the ancient Greek philosophers, hence the term pseudoscience. In a sense, modern times scientists attempted to justify through experimental findings the concepts of the universe literally described by the ancient Greek philosophers. Do this prove that ancient Greek philosophers were wrong, or those who utilized ancient Greek philosophy's elements religiously tried to justify the root of their discoveries? Ether was not referred to as a medium or matter or substance by the ancient Greek philosophers, but needed to be materialized by the latter scientists based on their perception of the world. Let's take an example. The magnetized plasma erupting from the solar corona creates space weather hostile to the astronauts in space, orbital satellites and ground electrical infrastructure. 
the solar winds outbreaks are crucial to groundworks explained by the Earth's magnetosphere store and solar energy release. The explanation of magnetic plasmas is limited by the current magnetohydrodynamic theory. We definitely have a more realistic view of our world because we have at our disposal observation tools that better justify our findings and develop those observational instruments based on the progress and understanding of science better to interpret our findings in the last two centuries. In any case, there is no need for proof of ether by the physics, laws and theories. We only need to observe and evolve our current theories based on new unknown evidence from nature and the universe. Dr. Spiros Kasapis is a research scientist at the NASA Ames Research Center who works on machine learning applications for heliophysics. Spiros was born and raised in Thessaloniki, Greece. He did his Bachelor of Science and Master of Science in Aerospace Aeronautical and Astronautical Engineering at the Worcester Polytechnic Institute. He continued with a Master of Science in Naval Architecture and Marine Engineering at the University of Michigan on Arbor, where he also finished his PhD. At the time of his PhD, Spiros had an internship at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, where he worked on developing a code to obtain and analyze Solar Dynamics Observatory or SDOD data for the characterization of radiation belt activity in SDO's orbit. You will listen to what Spiros thinks on what the future of space exploration is. Peter Diamandis, a Greek-American marketeer, engineer, physician, founder and chairman of the XPRIZE Foundation, also former CEO and co-founder of the Zero Gravity Corporation, co-founder and vice chairman of Space and Ventures at the D and other initiatives such as Rocket Racing League, International Space University, Planetary Resources, Cellularity, Students for the Exploration and Development of Space, says that colonizing space is a moral imperative. Diamandis says that the lowest motivator in space exploration is curiosity that funded NASA so far. The stronger motivator is fear, as in that of competition of one nation against the other, and wealth is the motivator for entrepreneurs, of course, we all also think of Elon Musk. What is the future of space exploration? Um, thank you very much for the question. Uh, it is a long one, so I'm going to break it down to like uh, three main points. First of all, curiosity. Curiosity is indeed uh, a big motivating factor when it comes to like space exploration. Uh, human beings have been curious since... Uh, forever since uh, the beginning of uh, human history and this is something that we keep doing uh, humans have this innate need to learn to learn the truth uh, to learn where they come from and where they're going so this is what science uh, is trying and space exploration in general is trying to achieve uh, answer those basic questions that no one yet, not even religions, has have been able to answer. Uh, when it comes to wealth, um, when it comes to uh, colonizing other planets or other galaxies down the way or uh, God knows what, um, yeah, we can see history repeating itself. Uh, people from uh, Western Europe colonized um, other countries in the 1600s and 1700s uh, for the reasons of uh, wealth and uh, value production. 
this might also be a motivating factor for a lot of people, as you said, or for a lot of countries. Um, simple examples of this axiom would be um, mining other planets or uh, growing industries in other planets so that we can produce more value as a society. Um, so yes, wealth is indeed also um, a motivating factor to explore space. When it comes to competition, um, there is definitely competition when it comes to colonization of uh, space or space ex exploration. But uh, lately, and this is uh, a very interesting aspect, I'd say, of science and a very optimistic aspect of science, we've seen that because space exploration, although it has to do with governments, mostly has to do with scientists. Uh, and scientists uh, understand that there is no borders in science. It doesn't matter whether you're, whether you're Indian, Greek, Chinese, or American. Uh, the production of knowledge or all are uh, important to the production of knowledge. Therefore, although there is healthy competition between space agencies or companies, we've seen uh, a very optimistic amount of collaboration between all these agencies. It seems that space and space science uh, brings people together rather than uh, splitting them apart. Uh, we saw this uh, lately when Russia invaded uh, Ukraine and nothing really changed at the uh, International Space Station because the mission is science, the mission is uh, truth, the mission is knowledge and politics uh, doesn't really have or let's say uh, the visions of uh, some politicians down on earth uh, does not have to do anything with uh, what our mission is. Beyond curiosity, beyond wealth, beyond motivation, what is your take on space exploration? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think uh, what I said as a first point before uh, when it comes to curiosity is uh, a big motivating factor. We, a lot of scientists, the reason why they do what they do is because, again, they want to figure out the truth. They want to answer those innate uh, human uh, questions that haven't, like religions, haven't been able to answer, neither philosophy. Uh, therefore, uh, here comes science to really tell us humans uh, who we are. 200 years ago, we had no idea what our spot was within the universe. Um, most people in the earth thought that uh, humans are the species that God selected uh, to be the epicenter of the entire universe. And through knowledge, through observation, through science, and through data, um, we came to a point to realize that all that we thought, all that we thought about ourselves as humans and as a society was faulty. It seems that we are not the center of the universe. We are rather um, like a very small speck or like beings in a very small speck of dust, uh, what we call earth 
in a very, very far um, and uninhabited side of the universe, a very insignificant uh, part of the universe. Therefore, that tells us a lot about um, about who we are too and, and how uh, we can live our lives. So you would say that space exploration is uh, the philosophical side of uh, a scientist or answers the existential questions of a scientist. Absolutely, yes. And not only scientists, everyone has these existential questions. Everyone uh, thinks at least once in their life, I would say once every day, uh, who they are and where they're going, where they're going after they die or uh, who they are uh, between other people or between uh, other universes. And uh, yeah, that's really what science tells us. You know, in, in 1989, Uh, on the 14th of uh, February was uh, the last time, I believe he was Voyager 2. He was uh, one of the NASA, <clears throat> well, one of the NASA spaceships uh, that uh, is at this point uh, outside the solar system. Uh, it's one of the spaceships that travels uh, uh, faster than any other um, spaceship NASA has built. And in the 14th of February, uh, 1989, Um, it was the last time we communicated with uh, Voyager 2 and we asked it to uh, turn around. It was, I believe, around uh, where uh, Jupiter is uh, right now or uh, where Jupiter orbits the sun. And we asked Voyager to uh, turn its cameras back and take a last picture of the solar system and a last picture of the Earth. And uh, the picture is very well known. It's called the pale blue dot. It's, it has been very well discussed by a uh, very famous scientist, uh, Carl Sagan. And what we see at that picture is the complete emptiness of our solar system, which we believe to be like uh, very full, actually. But the complete emptiness and uh, just like a speck, just one small pixel being the Earth. And you can uh, imagine how humbling this picture is, seeing us, ourselves, the entire Earth, from such uh, a far perspective. Um, an absolutely humbling experience that uh, really makes us understand that we have nothing to uh, divide uh, with our folks from, uh, you know, India, Russia, China, the U.S. Um, we are all inhabitants in this very small speck in the universe, and we have to To live together if we don't want to die together. Vasilis Iglesakis, who describes himself as a passionate scientist and loves reading and traveling, is a distinguished chemical engineer and accomplished reader at Strathclyde University in Scotland in the United Kingdom. With a passion for sustainable solutions and environmental preservation, Vasilis has dedicated his career to researching innovative approaches to address pressing global challenges. His expertise lies in the areas of water and wastewater treatment, adsorption technology, and environmental remediation through advanced materials, nanocomposites, water, wastewater reclamation, waste management, and soil and climate change. He's also appointed as Director of Research at the Department of Chemical and Process Engineering at Strathclyde University. 
He has published 125 journal papers, authored two books with Xavier, and co-authored, edited eight more books and book chapters. With Vasilis, we discuss the possibility of human missions to the Moon and Mars. Also, what drives us to make such deep space exploration and space and other planets exploration happen. Human missions to the Moon and Mars are huge, long-term and expensive. Why should we want to make them happen? I'm an enthusiast for human space missions, but what could we say to the skeptics? Yeah, thank you for this introduction. Well, if I if I have to if I if I if I have to use just one word, I would say the excitement of discovery or discovery. Human humans were always excited uh, with this uh, this kind of adventures, and uh, I can't imagine the world without the discovery from the West, at least, point of view of uh, America, for example. Uh, so people were always doing this. They were always uh, open and uh, excited to discover. That's why we left Africa many uh, hundreds of thousands of or million years ago, and that's why we, we we keep moving. We cannot stay still. We're just moving in all different directions and all different ways. So this is the this is one major factor. The second one is uh, technological slash economic. Uh, space can offer uh, many benefits in terms of materials uh, or resources, if you wish, in general, uh, uh, with implications in, in the economy. And, uh, and uh, so uh, many governments and investors, they are looking at this uh, dimension. Um, and uh, I would say that uh, in long term, as because you mentioned, you use the word uh, deep, um, deep uh, space, and uh, and and so on. I, I would I would add the the, the time uh, the time uh, di- dimension there uh, to think deep in time from the point of view that inevitably, uh, someday maybe tens of hundreds of years I don't know thousands we would need to leave Earth, or some of us we would need to leave Earth. We must have an alternative. Uh, it may sound. Uh, 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 strange to some, but uh, uh, we must we must have a, an a, an emergency exit. It might sound a little bit troublesome to say that at some point we might need to leave Earth. Why would this be? Would we expect that the climate change will get out of hand? Is it going to be the overpopulation of Earth, uh, the scarcity of natural resources, uh, maybe? we will experience changes beyond the climate on Earth. For instance, in many movies, we see the scenario that Mars has lost oxygen from its surface that it used to have um, some sort of uh, life forms present uh, on its surface, but no longer. So is it possible to have such a scenario on Earth? Because I haven't read any recent uh, publications relevant to or beyond climate change on Earth. So what would be these conditions um, that will force us to leave Earth? And uh, uh, would this be a plan that we put forward through these missions? There are... I'm not. Uh, I mean, I'm not well aware of this uh, kind of stuff. I mean, gravity cannot cannot uh, be altered or changed. But what can happen is the magnetosphere is something that happened in Mars. Uh, I don't remember when. I mean, millions of years ago. And uh, there, there is no magnetosphere. And magnetosphere is uh, like, uh, let's say, like a shield which uh, um, uh, protects uh, uh, planets, Earth, for example, uh, from uh, uh, solar uh, radiation. 
and particularly radiation and some other stuff that a physicist can uh, explain much 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 better than myself. But uh, the point is that. Uh, there are more immediate, more. I mean, for example, the the impact from an asteroid is, is something more probable than uh, the the loss of of, of magnetosphere, and uh, uh, asteroids is not something that is in only in 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 science in science fiction movies. Okay, it happens every million every. It has a recurrence. Okay, so it will happen. Uh, now, maybe a minor impact, maybe a major impact. I don't know. For, for instance, okay, now climate change, overpopulation, and everything else you mentioned. Yes. We may have a combination of all these things, and uh, you know when when because it happens and and I I I I I um, I, I, I had been teaching uh, risk analysis and uh, safety engineering and all this. You always must have a, 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 an option, always even even if the probability of of an event is zero point zero zero to minus ten doesn't matter. You must have an alternative. I mean, you must have an alternative. As chemical engineers, we are quite well aware of risk management and risk analysis that it looks like that our politicians are not so keen on such an approach. Kostadinos Lapis is a professor of chemical engineering at the California Institute of Technological Tech. He has made significant contributions to the field of chemical physics, astrophysics, and nanotechnology. Some of his notable work includes contributing to the understanding of reactive scattering of water group ions on ice surfaces. He has also been involved in research related to larger two-dimensional photonic band gaps. Kostadinos Yapis has published numerous research papers and has been cited over 5,000 times. Most importantly, Professor Yapis has contributed to understanding the mechanisms and processes involved in the production of molecular oxygen in space environments and understanding of the universe cosmology. With Professor Yapis, we discussed how our understanding and knowledge of the origin of molecular oxygen in space can be used to generate oxygen artificially in long-term space missions. And of course, we delve deeper into our existing knowledge to longer-term space missions. Could the understanding and knowledge of the origin and formation of molecular oxygen in space be used in reverse engineering to generate it artificially in long-term human space missions? That is a great question. Um, yes, it could. When um, we talk about um, oxygen generation in space, um, we actually mean various processes that can, can generate it. Uh, let's focus on the part of your question that talks about long-term space missions. So long-term space missions require lengthy travel. The astronauts are going to be in the spacecraft um, you know, for a long period of time. Whatever they take with them, they will use, and either it has to be enough to consume for the entire mission to take advantage of whatever is you know, the byproduct of the consumption of these materials, and recycle it. So everything internal to the spacecraft must be recycled and reused. That includes byproducts of respiration and in particular, you know, CO2. So humans emit uh, about 2.3 pounds of CO2 per day on average. Converting that back to molecular oxygen is actually imperative for any mission. First of all, you know, if you produce so much CO2, you've got to vent it, you've got to lose it, which generally you don't want to do. 
because it's a resource available to be used, except for the problem of, you know, how do you extract now back the molecular oxygen that you have consumed as a human so you can breathe it again? That's an expensive process. And the reason is that um, carbon dioxide is sort of a molecule that um, when it is formed, it allows us to extract maximum energy out of any fuel we use to, to, to create it. Uh, so when we burn food that we consume, you know, and oxygen, uh, oxygen is used to oxidize uh, some of the, the carbon contained in, in the food that we, uh, our bodies use, and it produces CO2 and allows us to extract maximum amount of energy out of it. Thermodynamics says that if you try to reverse this process, in other words, go back, take CO2 and go back into carbon and molecular oxygen, basically your starting state. So thermodynamics says that you will pay more energy than what you gain doing that. So reversibility has a price as we learn in chemical engineering. So there you go. So it's an expensive process to go back. However, if you are in a, in a, uh, in a space mission and uh, you're going to be in a spacecraft for however many months or you know, years in some instances, in principle, you rely on some form of energy that is available to you freely. And that would be, for example, solar energy. So you use solar panels to collect that energy. So you have, in principle, a lot of electricity available, collected, that needs to be, you know, used. So you need a device that takes CO2, takes that energy, that electrical energy that you collect in principle free, of course, to you using the solar panels, and, and, and you need to go back now into uh, carbon and um, molecular oxygen, or if you prefer, carbon monoxide and molecular oxygen, which, you know, can also be used as a fuel with the oxidizer present so for, for going farther in the mission. So you need basically techniques now that take CO2 into molecular oxygen and carbon. And that's a very challenging process. People working in catalysis have been trying to do this for, for, for many, many years. Um, regardless of the amount of energy, it's a very challenging process. CO2 is, is, is a molecule that is extremely stable. Uh, oxygen is bonded to carbon with a double bond. Breaking that double bond is, is a huge challenge. So our work on ion-surface interactions has found out that uh, all you have to do is take um, carbon dioxide, ionize it, and then accelerate it against the surface. So it can be, you know, a precious uh, catalyst metal, or it can be something as cheap as um, iron oxide, rust, a rusty piece of uh, iron. Uh, or it can be glass, you can bounce it off glass and you're going to basically figure out a way or there is a way to actually go back into molecular oxygen and carbon. And this in itself is, is actually a, a concept that uh, my colleagues in chemistry were not believing to begin with because they said this is impossible, you cannot do this in sort of one collision step. This is a very complex process and it requires all the effort that that entails. Uh, nevertheless, um, it's, it's one of those magical things that happen inside plasma. So we figured out a way to do it. The direct dissociation process has a low yield, but we have also an ileridial-based reaction uh, that occurs on oxidized surfaces that has a much higher yield. So it's a viable process. We actually have created a small plasma reactor the size of, you know, of a mug, my coffee mug that you see here. And um, 
And that one can actually use a small amount of electrical energy to, to create constantly, uh, to convert some of the carbon dioxide into carbon and, and molecular oxygen. A carbon atom is sticky, usually it sticks at the surfaces of, of, of the reactor. And so, you know, we get a stream coming out that contains um, molecular oxygen, as well as unconverted carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide that is being produced. So the challenge now becomes how do you separate the molecular oxygen from these gases? Well, we are chemical engineers, so we know a lot about separations. There are membranes that can be used. We haven't gone there yet, but um, uh, we think it's a tractable problem. The smallness of the reactor, the new principles, the fact that this, uh, for example, can run uh, in the atmosphere of Mars, uh, all you need is the separation technology that you can do it. So we. We have high hopes that this will be used actually in, or will be tested in future missions to Mars and uh, might be used you know, as an in-situ uh, converter of carbon dioxide into molecular oxygen. As we conclude this episode of Blue Sky Space Exploration Ether, we have delved into the fascinating world of space exploration guided by the single fundamental principle of humanity curiosity. Curiosity driven by fear and the wealth of knowledge taming the unknown that our ancestors tried to formulate through the descriptive narrations of science. Our exploration can take us on a journey through the intricate workings of the cosmos, where the fear of solar wind outbreaks serves as a crucial factor in laying the groundwork for space missions. We have discovered how Earth's magnetosphere acts as a protective shield. In our quest for knowledge, we have also explored the intriguing phenomenon of oxygen loss from the surface of planets. We have explored how carbon dioxide abundantly found on celestial bodies like Mars and Venus can be harnessed to produce life-sustaining oxygen in the vacuum of space. As we gaze towards the future, it is clear that space exploration holds immense potential for scientific advancement and the pursuit of wealth, even survival whether through the discovery of invaluable resources or the expansion of our understanding of the universe. With each step we take, driven by curiosity and guided by a healthy respect for the unknown, we inch closer to unlocking the mysteries that lie beyond our blue skies, to reach blue sky space exploration. Ether, in ancient Greek philosophy, was considered a pure fresh air or clear sky that the Greek gods breathed, as opposed to the air that mortals breathed. In the history of physics, ether was proposed as an invisible substance that filled the empty space and served as a medium for the propagation of light and other electromagnetic waves. This concept was later challenged, even before Albert Einstein, by the Michelson-Morley experiment in 1887, which demonstrated that light did not require a medium for its propagation. As we continue our exploration into the endless wonders of the cosmos, seeking answers, pushing boundaries and embracing the spirit of discovery, keep your sights set on the stars, for the journey into the great unknown has only just begun. Music